On today's Bioware, Dave and I will head to the Quantum Realm to review the latest MCU entry, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, plus nerd news to keep you up to date and nerd commendations to keep you nerding out. Welcome to episode 142 of the Nerd Byword, a podcast built on dad jokes and being way in over your head, a perfect place to review Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. But before our Byword big talk, it is time once again to dunk on the AI imbeciles in... Dave, now is the time where we point and laugh at them, even though it's an audio medium. Ha ha, yes, uh, you're, you're right, actually. Uh, so I'm uh, going by a, a new story that was published by Forbes magazine. However, I think the or- original reporting uh, came from Reuters. Um, so the U.S. Copyright Office has ruled that illustrations in a comic book that were created with the AI program Midjourney are, in fact, not protected by copyright law. Um Now, this is uh, really interesting. Uh, This was sort of a a test case, I think, in a lot of ways for how, um, you know, uh, the the Copyright Office uh, is going to deal with this. Uh, The comic book is Zarya of the Dawn. It was written by Christina Kashtanova uh, and was submitted uh, to uh, the U.S. Copyright Office. Um, All the images were created by Midjourney, which was not disclosed in the original copyright application. Um, So... Uh, A letter was sent by the uh, Copyright Office, uh, which says, and I quote here, We conclude that Ms. Kashtanova is the author of the work's text, as well as the selection, coordination, and arrangement of the work's written and visual elements. That authorship is protected by copyright. However, as discussed below, the images in the work that were generated by the mid-journey technology are not the product of human authorship. Uh, because the current registration for the work does not disclaim its mid-journey generated content, we intend to cancel the original certification issued to Ms. Kashtanova and issue a new one covering only the expressive material that she created. Uh, letter actually talks a little bit about um, that only things that are of human authorship can in fact be copyrighted, citing precedent involving animals that have taken photographs, for example, and how those have not been granted uh, any sort of copyright. Um, and he, here is, I think, the real crux of the matter that is going to continue to make this AI situation very interesting. A person who provides text prompts, again quoting from the letter, to mid-journey does not actually form the generated images and is not the mastermind behind them. The information in the prompt may influence generated image, but prompt text does not dictate specific results. So uh, this is, uh, you know, going to be uh, a very, very interesting situation moving forward. I have been reading, uh, you know, a lot about this uh, as somebody who is big into, you know, trying to create comic books and break back into the industry a little bit myself. I'm, I'm very interested to see where all this is going. And obviously, um, I'm not a big fan of, of taking the human element out of art, especially 
um, be, because, you know, well, I, the, the human element is what makes it art, right? Um, so AI-generated gen- imagery is not something I'm particularly interested in working with. However, I am concerned with how it is influencing the industry. Um, I know chat GBT, uh, is be, GPT is being used a lot um, for trying to create, like, um, uh, written uh, you know, prose stories now. Uh, there's some magazines that have actually stopped taking uh, submissions, except for from authors that they've worked with previously, because they've started getting submissions that were written by Chat GBT, and uh, that means, of course, that um, it's going to become increasingly harder for for people to try to break into those industries uh, when everybody is getting eyeballed very carefully. Is this even you know generated by a human being? At this point. Uh, AI generation is not exactly perfect, and you can, you know, very quickly pick up on imperfections and the like. But as that technology uh, is refined, um, I think there's probably the potential for a lot of fraud here, including against something like the Copyright Office, because it's not going to be necessarily easy to figure out whether something was created by a human or artificial intelligence. I'm deeply troubled by all of this. Um, I'm really hoping that we find a way to to ethically use AI technology without, you know, taking the human element out of art uh, and storytelling. Um, so I think this this new story is a real positive in my book, in that we're you know focusing on on artists and and their rights over artificial intelligence. Uh, but I, I'm still troubled by the the trends currently, uh, you know, in in artificial intelligence as content creators. Chris, what are your thoughts on it, this it, one? It truly is mind blowing because how have these people not ever seen like a, a sci fi movie where like have you not seen iRobot or anything of that ilk? You know, where we we give and we give and we give and we trust and we trust to our artificial intelligence and then they summarily take over uh at, like we're going to have another ultron in our situation i i'm i'm being facetious but not really because um the the more we remove the human element from the creative process the less authenticity that we have and that's one of my biggest ethos is to have you know authenticity this this gives me the same energy like when i teach i teach foreign language classes and I get the same energy from a sixth grade student who copies and pastes something into an online translator and tries to correct my, you know, Spanish uh, when, you know, I've studied almost on a daily basis since I was 16 years of age. This is the same type of people that we're dealing with. But fortunately for our children, uh, they're only 12 years old and they this is one of those teachable moments where they can correct their ways. But these are full grown adults who believe that they have the right and and um, to to pull off stuff like this and pose as a creator? Um, so it's 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 deeply uh, troubling to me. I I, I full heartedly uh, wholeheartedly agree that this is a very important precedent to set. Um, but my um, I guess my pragmatic nature worries if it's going to do anything because these people are growingly and increasingly resilient. Um, So I think rightfully so social media has kind of banded together. Lots of folks uh, uh, taking a strong stance against AI stuff, but there's still like, there's still like the fun aspects of just being goofy with AI, but it is uh, a slippery slope in my opinion, when it comes to to people like this who, who don't get the novelty and like just 
playing around with an AI generator and take it seriously. Like they can pass their work off as someone else. And, you know, as, as educators, uh, the chat GPT or whatever is deeply troubling and, and, you know, the prospects of education in the future. Yeah. You know, to, to circle back, uh, you know, to art, I think one of the things that I find particularly troubling, and I think something that probably needs to be dealt with, um, Within the legal system, I, I think this is something we're we're probably going to have to have some kind of there's, there's going to have to be a law or something to deal with this. Um, is is simply that you know AI does not create art in a vacuum. Uh, instead, it basically is pulling from the works of other artists, right? Exactly. Basically, it's being fed all this different art that were created by humans, and then you know, I mean. A lot of people that post like stuff that they've generated uh, in Midjourney uh, on social media even say, "I popped in this artist's name because I wanted his style." Well, that's exactly what's happening here, right? This AI is basically using art that was created by human beings and then sort of remixing it and altering it, uh, but it is still baseline human art, um, and and I think that should qualify as a copyright violation, right? I mean, if I were a artist, I mean, I am. Are right, but I'm not, you know, a visual, artistically a visual artist. Yeah. Uh, if I were, if I were a visual artist, I would be extremely troubled that this artificial intelligence is just kind of, kind of suck up things that I have created and then spit out some kind of imitation of me, which it is not able to do. It cannot imitate, you know, my art style unless it has input of my art style. So I think there should be probably some kind of law that says that. You know, uh, not without express permission is are you as a company allowed to use somebody else's art in order to generate new works based on their art? I think that that should be a clear copyright violation. The problem, of course, is that copyright law, like really all law, is extremely slow to respond to new technological trends. And we are probably going to be in no man's land for for quite a while until you know the the legal system catches up with what's going on in technology right now. Yeah, I, and for those of you that want certain characters drawn in the art style of a given artist, let me let me break some news to you. Uh, there are lots of artists uh, whom you may be fans of their work that have commissions, and if you want a character drawn by them. Have them commissioned work, but as as is like the going rate, I guess, with so much of technology and and kind of at least American consumerism, we have this like growing petulance of like what I want and I want it now and I don't want to pay for it. Um, and so like this is kind of like rewarding the oh god, what's that girl? What's the girl from Willy Wonka? Um, the 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 spoiled brat that wants what she wants um is it veruca is that the spoiled one i i, so I think something like yeah that. so not, i haven't seen that in years to if, be honest with you if you really want something done in the star uh, the art style of chris bashalo you want chris bashalo to draw a spider-man well go commission chris bashalo you know if you want um lucas vernick to draw you a superman go commission him and pay that human being you know, the correct agreed upon amount that are their rates. And if you can't afford that, then guess what? You don't get it. And so just to take this easy way out on so many different things is is just frustrating to me. 
Yeah, and it's not like there are not things that AI can effectively do. I, I was dealing with a, a, a system just recently where you can feed in a photo and it animates the photo. And I was using uh, historical paintings of various figures um, as a way of using that in my classroom, you know, so I could like take a painting uh, of Henry VIII and I could animate it. So it looks like he's actually like moving around and blinking and looking at the students. And that really caught their attention. Like that, that sort of thing is really cool. You know, and you're dealing with with historical paintings or or pictures of family members that you know have long passed, yes. and you you know you you want to see that animated. There's really cool things there, right? But you're also you know you're dealing with stuff from an educational standpoint or personal property, but you're not you know violating an artist's copyright at that point, right? Uh, and I think that's that's I think really the 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 biggest you know problem here for me is that AI is basically just at this point remixing pre-existing art as a way of imitating a, a existing artist's art style. And I think to me, that's just a copyright violation. Did period. you make him say, I'm Henry VIII, I am? Uh, n- no, there's no vocal thing. It's just like kind of moving around, blinking and smiling a little bit. Um, I, I find I find that technology really interesting because it's made for photos. But if you shoot a painting through there, it can do the same thing. It, it's kind of almost a, it's a very surreal experience to see sort of a painting come to life like that. Uh, but it definitely gets students' attention. And when you're dealing with, you know, historical figures that have been, you know, dead for 500 years or something, um, it's it's definitely an attention grabber to, to see them sort of animatedly move around. So, um, like, that that technology I will continue to integrate in my classroom whenever possible just because it's an attention I grabber. I see the social media ad for Thomas Jefferson singing the sea shanty all the time, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if there I needed that. There once was a ship that put to I'm sea. Chris, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. Let's, 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 let's talk about movie news since we got into legal quagmiring here again. <laughs> All right, so we're headed back to Middle Earth. Um, this is probably the first positive thing out of David Zaslav's mouth since he raised all the things that we love in a way that makes Smaug look like a level one Charmander. Fresh off of the acclaim of Amazon's uh, The Rings of Power Season 1, it was recently announced that multiple Lord of the Rings films are in the works, with the focus reportedly being on Tolkien's additional writing rather than revisiting the Peter Jackson films. Thank God. While mum's the word on exactly who will be taking on these new projects, Jackson and his representatives did release a statement saying, quote, they, being WB and Embracer, have kept us in the loop every step of the way. We look forward to speaking with them further to hear their vision uh, for the franchise moving forward. End quote. Dave, you are famously curmudgeon when it comes to Tolkien at all and fantasy at large, with the, the exception of our beloved Witcher. Any swaying in your emotions so far? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, look, I, I, I cannot deny that there was this, you know, let me put it this way. I, to me, the um, creation of the Lord of the Rings movies uh, was a masterclass in filmmaking. And I will freely admit that even, even though some of the storytelling uh, of, of, you know, the original books, is not, you know, super to my liking necessarily, I am totally able to to say this is masterful, you know, movie making. On the flip side, I will also say that the uh, the Hobbit movies left me completely yes. cold, uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with the change in you know more green screen work and the, the shift in special effects, a lot less you know practical effects, a lot less you know forced perspective. Um, 
as a way of, of dealing with, um, you know, the, the Hobbit situation and how short they're supposed to be. I think when they abandoned some of those things, uh, it, it was less of a masterclass in, uh, in movie making uh, and much more to me uh, felt like a cash grab. It also has a lot to do with the fact that they were taking a very fairly short book yes, and then expanded yes. it outward into three movies and it became this bloated mess. So I think moving forward, um, when you're looking at, you know, what, what at least what I know are the additional writings uh, of Tolkien in, in sort of that Lord of the Rings universe, um, my impression is that we're dealing a lot with, um, you know, genealogies, histories, and fragmentary storytelling, right? So uh, putting that together into cohesive movie is going to probably either require a similar expansion, like what they did with the with the Hobbit, which could create, you know, bloat or a wholesale. Uh, addition and or reinvention, which could be very interesting, but is probably going to leave a lot of Tolkien fans uh, cold. So, um, meh. I mean, I I just I, I guess I'm going to be seeing a lot of Lord of the Rings fans whining here soon again on on social media, and I can't blame them if they're not getting what they're looking for. But uh, it, the news kind of leaves me cold, to be honest with you. I'm gonna first. I'm gonna borrow one of your terms. I'm taking a wait and see approach because I'm waiting to see who is attached to these projects because um, I was open-minded when it came to the rings of Pro rings of power. And I was very impressed with the work that they did. Uh, namely the acting performances were out of this world. Um, and I think uh, I totally agree with what you said with a Hobbit. The only one caveat that I'll make is um, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Smaug was a revelation. It was really fun. And, and the fact that you had him playing off of Martin Freeman and their history on one of the, my favorite shows uh, of, of the tens uh, that you actually turned me on to was Sherlock. Uh, and so seeing them playing back and forth on the screen as Hobbit and dragon was a lot of fun. Um, but I think <clears throat> the, the Hobbit films were a cautionary tale of, you know, too much power on Peter Jackson's part, and he could just couldn't quit it. Um, and and we kind of saw a similar situation with Jeff Johns and the Jeff Johns verse that was the DCEU. Like he was he had too much say with the DC film projects, I believe. Um, and so I'm excited to see like a new voice and a new direction taken with this. Um, now if if we're just going to be honest with it, this is probably a cash grab over a popular IP from Zaslav's part. But if we can get, uh, you know, unique creative voices, some, some, some kind of visionaries in the director's chair uh, and some, and some cool actors that need, you know, more of a spotlight that I'm here for it. And the thing is too, man. And, and I have not, I have not forgotten this. Um, Pre-production on the Hobbit, was started under Guillermo del Toro. And now I, I was there for that. I love Guillermo del Toro's work. I just, I just, I'd adore that man. And, and seeing his take on, uh, on the Hobbit would have been super interesting. And the fact that he ended up stepping away and they brought back Peter Jackson, it, it kind of completely killed my excitement because out of all of Tolkien's work, and maybe because it's more aimed at a younger audience or something, I, um, I tend to, gravitate much much more strongly towards the hobbit uh, generally uh, as opposed to the lord of the rings and i was kind of excited to see 
you know what what was going to happen with that um under del toro and then that didn't happen and that made me extremely sad so i i personally gravitate more towards the hobbit um you you came up with like a real scholastic you know definition and reasoning behind it i just like bilbo more uh, bilbo more as a protagonist than frodo frodo uh, frodo is a whiny punk uh and bilbo is like you see more character growth within the hobbit uh as opposed to frodo who's just whining the whole time so it sounds about right all right that wraps up our nerd news segment what are we, your reactions to this uh ruling against ai copyright and uh the development of more lord of the rings films when we come back from this, our first break, we are going to be reviewing the latest entry in the MCU, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here once more with our byword. And as is our custom, with any film or series review, we each have three likes, three dislikes, and then a final grade overall. So, Dave, Quantum Mania, a hot button issue, I guess. Like, it's been really ragged on by critics. The audience score has kind of come back, but say what you will about Rotten Tomatoes scores, it's kind of been irreparably damaged at this point. Let's go with our likes first. What is your first like of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? I, I think um, you and I are probably going to agree on this. And um, I'm, I'm not surprised that this was first on the list for pretty much both of us. And it, it's just Kang as a character, as an interpretation, as acted by Jonathan Majors. Um, this character is really intriguing to me. Um I, I you know I've encountered Kang a handful of times in comic books, but I'm not like super deep into Kang lore. Um, so I, I came into this with a fairly open mind, and I have to say that what little we got of Kang, and I understand that this is the beginning. Well, technically Loki was, but I understand this is the beginning of this version of Kang's journey uh, in the MCU. You know, we didn't get a whole lot, but what we got, I found very intriguing. I think there were very interesting hints dropped about, you know, what's coming with the character. Uh, there were very interesting hints dropped about what's coming through that character with the future of the MCU. Uh, but most importantly, I think the character just really clicked. Um, the, maybe that has a lot to do with the with the power of the charisma of the actor here. But, you know, there was something really cool calm and collected but at the same time there was like a lot of danger bubbling just below the surface that just every once in a while kind of spiked outward and i really appreciated um jonathan major's restraint in a lot of ways and how he portrayed kang not this you know mustache twirling you know villain but really you know somebody who who you know is still waters you know that that run really deep uh it left me wanting more uh you know, and and I, w- I want to see where where the character goes from here. So uh, Kang to me clicked uh, in every way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback, and we'll just go ahead and bleed right into my first like because uh, the range that Jonathan Majors was able to show, particularly if you extend that into like the post credit scenes, and the fact that this is a tall order. For to have like a story completely based on the variants of one particular character 
you need someone with the acting range. And like, I cannot imagine uh, this might be blasphemous, but I think this is the best casting in the MCU that we've ever seen all respect to Robert Downey Jr. I know he always gets his flowers and rightfully so is Tony Stark, Iron Man. But I think this is the most pitch perfect casting we've ever had. When you see like Ramatut and the, the various, the council of Kangs and the range and as you said, the restraint that reduced that soft spokenness of some of those variants is just mind blowing. And so like, I'm very um, say what you will about this film as in general. And, you know, you hinted at it with like, we didn't get enough Kang, but like where we're going with the future of the MCU after a noted dip after an after Endgame and Infinity War, like there's been a lot of knee jerk reactions to Phase Four, um, and Phase Five. But I am really excited to see where we go from here, and that is built completely on the shoulders of Jonathan Freakin Majors. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, I, and, and it's I'm I've not been at any point one of these people that is just like really ripping into. Uh, you know, post um, end game uh, MCU content. I think there's a lot of stuff to really like, but it is undeniable that, you know, the story kind of crescendoed and then things slowed down a little bit and uh, not, not everybody's doing very well dealing with that little slowdown. Um, so to borrow uh, a phrase from uh, good old JR in the, in the wrestling <laughs> world, uh, it finally feels like business is about to yeah. pick up. It's almost like um, the way you laid it out like that. It's almost like we're in phase one all over again. And and Endgame kind of, uh, Infinity War kind of toppled all the pieces. And then Endgame kind of, you know, slowly placed them back over. And now with, um, you know, the the powers that be, the 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 the, the core heroes of of the first uh, Infinity. Um, series is is like being off being removed from the board is like we're kind of having a reset and it's almost like we're in phase one again and so like i can be patient and i think that's something that american audiences don't really have is patience so i'm really excited for where we're going and it is a reset i mean i think we have to we have to desperately just accept that uh there's a you know characters have departed new characters need to be introduced the 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 scene needs to be set you can't jump into another big avengers event when you know a huge chunk of the avengers are not there anymore yeah. like you have to rebuild you know and and that is something that uh is, is going to take a little bit of time and i think there's interesting things on the horizon if people just you know give it a chance to to sort of naturally grow into something again but you know maybe that's just it's me. almost like the, the the old john McEnroe quote about his kids having affluenza like we got so spoiled with the infinity saga that now we expect that every single film and every single series yeah that's exactly what it feels like all right dave uh uh apparently a very uh polarizing figure uh at the center of which is my most most viral tweet ever uh, is your second big like of the film. Yeah, I'm just going to say it. I understand that this is pretty different from the comic book, but I, I ended up really liking this interpretation of Modoc. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to make any apologies for that. I know it's different and I know comic book purists 
um, are not, you know, going to en- enjoy this maybe quite as much as I did. And in fairness, uh, I think we all have our sacred cows when it comes to comic books and adaptations. For me, it's obviously Superman. I've said this many times. And I can understand and sympathize with uh, fans that, you know, of MODOK that are not happy with this interpretation. Like, I get it. I, I really understand if, you know, this ki- these kinds of wholesale changes were made to somebody like Superman, I probably would not enjoy it either. So, Modoc is just not a sacred cow for me. And so what they did here, I thought was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed that they uh, were able to tie this back around to the first Ant-Man movie, you know, by bringing a character back in that fashion. I really loved the juxtaposition uh, between the constant attempts at killing everybody and the cordial um, nature of verbal interaction. <laughs> like, you know, hey, Scott. How you doing? And then suddenly tries to kill him. Like you know, the, the, I just I, I found that juxtaposition so awesome. Like it it made me laugh every time. And I will freely admit, not all of the humor in this movie landed for me, but that juxtaposition landed for me every stinking time. Even all the way at the end, uh, when he finally runs into Hank again, he's like, "Hey, Hank!" And then suddenly he's trying to kill him. But I'm like, <laughs> it's just like that juxtaposition got me every time. Um, I, I have to say, I also ride for, for Modoc Buttshot. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and I also found the ending of the character, at least in this movie, really interesting, where he, you know, rides to the rescue and starts yelling, I am not a d-. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I thought just like the whole arc of the character, um, this particular interpretation of the character really worked. I'm, I'm hoping that they figure out a way to move forward with the character to bring him back because obviously Modoc is, is, you know, a pretty important uh, character in the comics and i think there's potential to slowly move him uh maybe closer to uh what we're what we're known for in the comics right but um i'm just i found the character really amusing and a very cool interesting way of tying things back you know to earlier in the series so i was i was entertained by modok yeah uh <laughs> for context the, the the tldr of my tweet was some of you just need to stop hate watching uh, the MCU because there's so many people that are just praying like candlelit vigil for the downfall of the MCU for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe they're DC fans. Maybe they are just tired of going to MC- MCU movies like to which I say just stop going like stop like the fact that you're up in arms about Modoc, That's not a serious character. It's not. And. I found all two of the Modoc stands in my mentions who conveniently had accounts created within the past few weeks with a Modoc profile picture and all of 12 followers. So um, the intended audience uh, for that tweet was perfect. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, my only my only nitpick is coming in my dislikes with the character. Um, but I, I thought it was really kind of fun. And the fact that like, I don't understand why some people don't see this comic book purist as like to borrow a phrase from DC. The MCU's in Elseworlds. It's an alternate universe. So it's not going to be page for page carbon copy Modoc. Why would you want that? So you can stay true to the character, sure. But if you just have a page for page carbon copy of Modoc, go read the comic book. Like, um, yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun and maybe don't be a dick from Cassie. And then he's like, I am not a dick as like his death knell. Like that was great for me. 
Yeah, and again, I think I am a little more um, sympathetic maybe to that because I have kind of gone through a character that I really like being adapted for the big screen and not exactly hitting the notes I was hoping for uh, in, in, you know, the most recent Superman uh, you know, as you know, put out there by Zack Snyder, and so I understand. I think where where some of these fans are coming from, um, but you know, also Modoc seems like a weird sacred cow to have. I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. If you if you are a Modoc stan, if like he's your sacred cow to use your terminology, I legitimately do not believe you. Yeah, it seems like a weird character to be like, this is my ride or die. <laughs> this this character needs to be the exact exactly the right interpretation. Or I'm like Moda? He's a really? big head, he's a big head in a in a in a booster seat with baby legs. Like, get over yourself. He's basically murderous Humpty Dumpty. Yes. I mean, like, like let's let's not mince any words here, you know? Also, if you want if you want a comic accurate one, the Patton Oswalt show is a masterpiece and still exists. So go watch that. All right, Chris, so what is your second like for Quantum Mania? This was the biggest pleasant surprise of the film for me. Like, I knew that I was going to love Jonathan Majors. I love everything else that he's in. I love um, Lovecraft Country. I love The Harder They Fall. Everything I've seen with Jonathan Majors has been spectacular. Um, I knew that I was going to get the dorky dad jokes from Paul Rudd, and I knew I was going to, like, that was going to be perfect for me as a dorky dad. But the biggest pleasant surprise was like the Hank and Janet parts of this film. And like, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, roles for actors who reach a certain age. A lot of this discourse um, was was kind of brought up again when we got a masterpiece of a film like Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I don't know if that counts as a nerd commendation, but good God, go watch that movie. It's it's perfect. Um and so seeing Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas as, you know, folks who are advanced in age, but still like having time to shine in a big budget film, like an MCU film is really, really cool. And, you know, Janet being, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer being a bad in the quantum realm is like a rebel and like an action star. And then having Hank and his freaking ants, like just using his genius um was kind of cool and now it's to the point where i'm like do i want a prequel series with hank and janet because you know some mcu critics have been like well how are these you know how are the x-men gonna pop up after all this time and how are certain series uh certain characters like captain marvel just gonna be pitching uh it's kind of a wedged in here to a previously established timeline i'm like well, they kind of had Hank and Janet like 20 years before the main MCU timeline, and we kind of took that running. And so I kind of want a Hank and Janet series because I really love them in this movie. I do too. Um, and, and you know, I think you hit something really interesting on the head here. Um, I think we are, as a society really, especially when it comes to like movies and television, we're really overly focused on um, youth and beauty. Um and, and kind of reject, you know, wisdom and normality a little bit. Um, and so seeing, not not that Michelle Pfeiffer is not still absolutely gorgeous, but... Um, Silver seeing, Fox you know, era, we love that for her. Holy smokes. Um, but just like having characters that are that are older and, and you know, wiser for that, 
up on the big screen having adventures rather than, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobiing the situation like they show up for 30 minutes, mentor uh, some youngster and then die unceremoniously is kind of nice. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And Hank as a character is probably... Uh, one of the stronger through lines of the Ant-Man movies, I think. I really, like, enjoyed him from, like, the word go, even in the first one, when we got that that de-aged flashback of him. Um, like, the character just really sings. And yeah, I agree. I would totally love to see some kind of prequel where we get to see, you know, the original Ant-Man and the original Wasp doing, like, spy adventures or something. Like, I'd totally be there for that. With a caveat, we do have to recast. Please, no more... Uncanny Valley? Nope, no more. Do you have to recast if you do that? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Let's recast. All right, Dave, what is uh, your third and final like for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? You know, it's. I think it's the base concept. Uh, and when we get to our dislikes, I think you'll find that maybe I didn't enjoy the movie quite as much as I hoped I would, uh, given the base concept. Like, I really like... Um, the idea of stranding everybody in the quantum realm, uh, you know, Janet being the one who's been there and kind of guiding things along. There's something she didn't tell people about um, that is, you know, a danger that's lurking there. Um, and then, you know, something that the the trailer really leaned into that the movie didn't uh, is the temptation of Scott Lang. Like, I think that they really dropped the ball on that part because the, the notion of, hey, you lost all this time, I can give it back to you. Um, that that was such an interesting hook that absolutely went nowhere, right? So the base concept that you have Scott, you know, and and his, what his family means to him, and that there's tension between him and his daughter, and that he could go back and he could, you know, reclaim that lost time and wipe out the tension between him and his child, you know, because he then he's not the absent father, even though that wasn't in his power. Um, that you know had me really intrigued. Um, so although the execution didn't quite live up to what I was hoping for, I think the base concept of the movie is incredibly strong. Um, now, why did it not you know, live up to, to my hopes? Um, I think we can talk about that in our dislikes. But I have to say, like as a, a trilogy closer, I guess, if you will, uh, possibly the last Ant-Man movie, I thought that this as a concept was really, really strong. Yeah, um, I will say that uh, while I agree with you, I think they did give that moment to Janet. Um, where Kang was tempting her quite a bit about going back and seeing hope and and losing all or, or excuse me regaining all that time that was lost um but I would have liked to have seen it from Scott's perspective as well I don't think they leaned in it too far enough but um our beloved Gail Simone kind of put it in perspective for me when she compared it to like an episode of Star Trek and I think that was that's so perfect like there's so many sci-fi elements just weird like some strange looking aliens. Um, and it just felt like an old school, maybe even like an original series, um, Star Trek episode. And, uh, I, I really loved it for that. I think that's fair. All right, Chris. So that brings us to your final, like, uh, what you got? You, you really mentioned this. I remember when we had Ash from X of Words on, um, as one of your likes of that film is like the emotional resonance and, and something that I appreciate being the through line of all three of these films is the family elements. And, um, you know, as, as a father, as a head of household, that just really connects with me. And the fact that, um, you know, in this new era of the MCU, where we're resetting the, the, the game board, if you will, is you've got to stand out. And and the fact that we can have that continual through line that stands out even with 
a, a new actress as Cassie Lang is, is really, really important to me. And like the family dinners, uh, making up for the lost birthdays um, were really cute and, and really poignant for me. So I just I just love the family element that is that is ever present throughout all three of these films. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I agree with that. I think that uh, here again, I think the execution wasn't quite what I was hoping for in certain places, but I too appreciate that through line. And I'm really, really glad that they took a, a sort of a family uh, oriented approach to this whole, uh, you know, three movie cycle. Uh, I think that was a very, very smart thing to do uh, to lean into that. And I think this movie in particular needed to lean into that in particular because of, um, you know, Scott's absence. So, um, yeah, I, I'll I'll totally agree with that. All right, Dave. Uh, now we switch to our dislikes. What is the first dislike you've hit? You've hinted at it a tad. Uh, your first dislike of Ant Man: The Lost Quantumania. I think that between the last movie and this movie, the quantum realm has lost a little bit of its uniqueness. Um, I think you can you can say they shrunk down and are in the quantum realm. Um, and pay lip service to the notion, but nothing about this really felt like that. It just felt like some random alien planet, you know, like, oh, there's some weird creatures, there's a spaceship you're flying around, there's a there's an evil overlord, there's a rebellion, you know, you have characters that inexplicably look human, but they're not human, like Bill Murray. Um and and so like this the quantum realm has this really strange ethereal weird place um kind of was chugged uh in this movie in exchange for random alien world and random alien plot number 46 like you know evil evil ruler rebellion here's some characters they throw in with they help with the rebellion you know blah 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 um and as so i'm not sure what i was expecting here but given the brief glimpses we got of the quantum realm in the past and and you know the the reverence the fear that uh, that was sort of aimed at that realm and, and then um just you know the the mysteriousness of how you know uh, jan re- was referring to her time there and what she's been up to i didn't think thriving civilization ruled by you know kang the conqueror was what was what we were going to get there um so i was a little disappointed about how generic i think the quantum realm ended up being in this movie in the grand scheme of things yeah, I, I I don't disagree. I think um especially when you come at the end and like especially like the, the time scale when in comparison like how it's a different time down there and it seems like they came back to the very same moment that they left or at least that's what we were led to believe. I don't know um if Kang's involvement had something to do with that, but it didn't really feel like it did and it, it kind of had lost its luster. Yeah, yeah, that I think that's exactly right. There was a lot about how pat the ending was too. I think that we're going to have to talk about at some point later. Um, let, let, let's just move on, Chris. What is your uh, first dislike of the movie? Uh, this is probably the only like really strong criticism that I have. Everything else is more of a nitpick, um, which is why I'm surprised that the show, the, the movie, has been so negatively reviewed. Um, the movie's called Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. And Hope is an afterthought in this movie. Uh, she does have some moments of like coming in and saving the day and stuff, but she doesn't have like a central plot. She doesn't have a story arc. She's just there as a supporting character that 
saves everybody's butt have the time so i would have liked to have some kind of storyline maybe her coming in as a stepmother role to cassie um and dealing with that there wasn't even like a strong like romantic plot at all i don't i i almost forgot like are they did they make them a couple are they a couple they had like it wasn't like super strong in any direction for her and i'm not sure why yeah, yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that there was a th- that was a big misstep. I mean, named character in title of movie matters not nearly as much as she should. Um, you know, happens happens a little more often than I uh, than I care to think about, to be honest with you. Um, so I was disappointed with that as well. I think there were so many interesting opportunities for an interesting story arc for her. Um, but a lot of that stuff was dropped. I think, you know, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna talk about this um, in my next dislike. So I'm gonna put a pin in that. But I, I will totally agree that this was a, a pretty egregious um, side, not sidelining so much, but like shuffling to the back of, of of priorities for a really interesting character. All right, let's dive right into that dislike, Dave. What you got? Okay, so so let, let's. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my podcaster hat off for a second and put my writer hat on, if you don't mind. Um, you know, this is this is not um, you know anything particularly new for people who enjoy movies or comic books, but I think this movie suffers from a, a conflict problem. Um, not that Kang is not a great antagonist. Um, that that obviously needs to be there, but I'm more talking about like conflict within um, the the family unit, conflict internal conflict within the characters. There are a lot of interesting things that the characters have done or are talking about. There is some resentment building, but that never goes anywhere because everybody is just so darn reasonable. You know, I, I think I think if we take a moment and step back, we realize that especially with the people we love, we're not always reasonable. There's hurt feelings. There, there's a sense of betrayal when something doesn't go the way we think it should, and none of that exists. Like when, uh, when Jan is spilling her guts about all the secrets she kept about you know the the, the quantum realm and her time there, everybody's like, "Oh, it's okay." You know, we understand, and I'm like. No, we don't. Be mad. You know, you're in the quantum realm. You're being hunted by this 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 you know dictatorial character, and it's all because you know she didn't decided not to tell you. Oh, she had a thing with Bill Murray. Um, Hank's totally fine with that. Oh well, you know. Um, even the, the 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 conflict that I think had the most potential, which was the conflict between between Cassie and, and Scott, uh, is not much of a conflict you know it's like cassie's like i want you to do more you stopped helping people and scott is like yeah but i'm just like you know need a break and and then it's just like fizzles away and and really to me that should have been you know a place where a door opens in conflict like she says it's about you know scott not wanting to help anymore but really there's this underlying resentment because he was gone for for all that time right and yeah and yeah it's not his fault but it still hurts the child that daddy wasn't around and then you know you you can build towards a big catharsis you know and then you have a climax that's not just about you know giant ants attacking 
Kang, but also an emotional catharsis. And I think that's the thing that we're missing the most in this movie is emotional catharsis. You do not let the the good guys basically in this movie come into a strong enough conflict that you can then resolve by the end. You know, and there is so much potential for conflict. Maybe Cassie, you know, resents uh, resents Hope as this this figure that came in and is trying to be her stepmom. Cassie resents Scott because Scott wasn't there all this time. You know, Hank is is having issues with with Jan because she was do up to all this stuff and never told him about it. And Hope has issues with Jan because she kept all these secrets. And like then you build up all these emotional conflicts, and then you 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 bring them to the climax at the same time as the climax emerges between them and Kang. And then you have a climax that feels satisfying, not just on a spectacle level, but on an emotional level. And I think that's the misstep of this movie more than anything. There were so many moments where I was like, okay, emotional catharsis, emotional catharsis. Oh, this is really bold. This can be really good. And it never builds. This goes right up to the ending as well. Like, I love that moment when when Hope comes back through that portal, right? And is and and saves Scott and then they're both standing there and they're kind of looking out over the little rebellion being victorious and the sense is they're stuck. You know, this was a real yes, sacrifice. Yes. This was a moment of real meaning. And the next time we see them, they're in the quantum realm and they have to fight their way back or something to warn the Avengers something's coming or whatever, right? I thought, holy crap, that's bold, you know? And then, you know, uh, Cassie just opens the portal back up and uh, they're, they're back home, you know? So anything that, that would have given you a real moment of emotional connection of 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 interpersonal drama you know cassie who's resented her dad and hope this whole time now has to face a world where they're not going to be around and she has to step up and and step and fill you know fill their shoes like all of the stuff that would have been really emotionally satisfying is, is just not there and i think that above all else is my main criticism of the movie i really enjoyed it as sort of you know popcorn fare but the building blocks were there for something that could have stayed with you and and it just doesn't it it, you know even having now seen this a week ago um, a lot of the particulars are you know already fading from memory because the interpersonal conflicts were just not memorable. The emotional connection wasn't as strong as it could have been with these characters. And and that, I think, is the real problem with the movie and the reason it's probably not resonating as strongly as it could have. It's very ably made. It's very fun in a lot of places. But what's missing is that emotional connection. Yeah, I don't feel any stakes in this movie except for the one moment that I was just like, oh, snap, something's about to go down, is when... Kang and and Majors is doing all the heavy lifting in this film for a lot of reasons um, is when he's like torturing them in prison. You know what I'm talking about? And like he's like flinging them around. And and that part, I was just like, oh, snap. That was the only time I felt real stakes in this. See, I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, snap. They're stuck in the quantum realm. This is really strong. This is a perfect. This is a perfect lead in to Kang Wars or Kang Dynasty or or whatever. Um, and, and then we didn't get that. It was just like, nah, just kidding. Two Kang, two Furies? <laughs> the, I heard another podcast say this, X-Ray Vision. Great podcast. Check it out. Um, in their review of the film of like, yes, Janet was like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. But if she would have said, listen, there's an evil overlord. <laughs> 
like we probably wouldn't have been dicking around in the quantum realm, you know? Like if she yep, would have just said, no "Listen, there's this dude Kang you don't want to mess with," we probably wouldn't have even had this movie. Um, you know, and like at least I understand being a forgiving nature, but still the fact the revelation that your wife had a had a relationship, um they also made in the same podcast made the joke that like she did not have relations with Krylar Bill Murray's character. Look at the chemistry she had with Kang. <laughs> there was something going down uh with her and Kang. Like the fact that that revelation was just so quickly overdone and I I also wonder like in no shots to Catherine Newton. I know a lot of people are up in arms that the previous actress got replaced. Um, and the way of her knowing was like the press release. And so like, I don't know if that has to play into the fact that, that we don't have the emotional resonance. I think that the chemistry that Catherine Newton has with the rest of the cast, you know, kind of leans into the reason why she was chosen for this role, uh, to have this big feature film. The previous actress was only in like one scene, um, in Endgame. So this, I just don't know why we didn't like the bare bones of it is there. Like you said, the base concept is really good. The bare bones of it is right there. And we had all the potential in the world for some really meaty, emotionally hefty stuff. And we just didn't commit to it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's, that's why to me, it's, it's kind of a, you know, there's that old joke, which I totally disagree with because I'm a huge fan of Chinese food, but that's, there's that old joke, you eat Chinese and 30 minutes later you're hungry again. Like, I, I found the movie in satisfying in the moment and 30 minutes later I you know, had yeah. already forgotten about it. So yeah. that that's, I think, and that that is a interpersonal conflict issue at top to bottom. Well, now I want some pepper chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your, uh, what's your second dislike of the movie, Chris? Uh, this is, again, more of a nitpick. Uh, I think we've we've tackled um, most of the big stuff for this movie, except for my third dislike is kind of a big one. This one, um, but it, it's kind of in lines with the commitment that we just talked about. It's like, we needed more Maudoc for, for Corey Stoll's kind of appearance is like his, his, you know, return in this pivotal role. I don't think he was in enough scenes to kind of have the emotional heft and impact that he could have had. So I think we needed some more Modoc for to really kind of drive that point home. And his redemption was was pretty streamlined and a little too quick. So uh, we needed more Modoc. Uh, I, I'm just going to go ahead and agree. I don't think I have anything else to add to that other than I really just <laughs> liked Modoc. I think Modoc worked really well. So uh, yeah, I would have been okay with more Modoc. Uh, Dave, your third and final dislike. Yeah, so uh, I think the only other thing that I really want to mention here is just that one of the charming things about the first two Ant-Man movies was, um, you know, the kind of things that happen in our world, right? And so when uh, we removed them into the quantum realm, um, that real-world connection, uh, the reaction of normal, everyday people who aren't, you know, in the superhero business, all of that stuff kind of got lost. And that was like half of the fun of the first two movies, and I think that's a problem that could have been very easily fixed uh, by, by having Luis uh, kind of get sucked into the quantum realm as well. I think that character is sort of a breakout character in, in the first two. Um, and a lot of people really, really 
enjoy that character. Uh, and so for that character to not even make any kind of appearance in the movie is, is just weird to me. I think the logical thing would have been that, you know, he's, he's visiting Scott or something. When this whole thing goes down, he gets sucked into the quantum realm as well. And then we have a normal, uh, well, normal, <laughs> uh, an everyman, somebody who is not neck deep in the superhero business, kind of reacting to some of the things that are happening in the quantum realm. And I think that could have been a very nice addition to the movie. It could have kind of um, knocked the humor up a notch because I don't think it always necessarily landed um, and, and could have, you know, you need a point of view character, right? When you're putting a bunch of characters in like a really strange situation. And I don't think there was a very clear point of view character here. You know, all of these characters had been in some way, shape or form involved in craziness in, in the past. Um, so having a real strong everyman character being like, what what the heck is going on would have been really, really good for this movie. So the omission of Luis, I think, was a, not a good move. I got it. I've got it right here. Okay. So he comes in after the fact to the house to drop off more books for Scott to sign. And he like lumbers his way into the place. He gets sucked into the quantum realm. The rest of them don't even know he's there. Then they bump into him. They're like, Luis, what are you doing here? And then he does his textbook like summary of what happened speaking really fast. Like that would have been perfect. Yeah, he's already there. They're like, what in the world? <laughs> that would have been awesome. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, but I I thought, you know, omitting that character was just not a good move. Uh, and, and like, Luis plus, like, the Glob Herman character, the Jello guy, like, that would have been perfect chemistry. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> throw throw Broccoli guy in there, too, and we really got it oh, going yep. on. <laughs> you know, Gene Gray fans were crying and throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, so what is your final dislike of the movie? I know I said I had nitpicks, but I think this is a pretty big one. Did we really just waste William Jackson Harper, dude? You mean you mean my pick for Mr. Fantastic? Yeah, like, and he was so great in this movie, like, in this incredibly limited role. He was so fun, like, playing with, like, the kind of the forgotten tropes of being a telepath and, like, being overwhelmed by reading people's thoughts and all that stuff. Just like, I, I don't know how I feel about that because he was great in this role, but like we really just take this immense talent and used him on like a one stop character. That's so that's deeply frustrating for me. I will totally agree with that. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of William Jackson Harper, big, big fan, especially because of uh, his work on the good place. I think, uh, he's just brilliant, 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 brilliant. And and I was really hoping when, especially when the cast announcement happened, that there was something there, you know, like this was the beginning of something for him. He was going to have some kind of, you know, bigger role in, in the larger MCU. And very clearly that is not the case. And I find that extremely depressing. Yep. All right. What a sour note to end on, but overall grade, Dave, for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I think there's a good movie in there, um, and I did enjoy myself while I was watching it. it it's those that lack of interpersonal conflict, that you know, heightened emotion, that the the sense of catharsis when you when you hit the 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 climax of the story, that really just knocked it down a peg for me. I would give it like a solid C, C plus maybe. I just think that it, it's it's there's a whole lot of wasted potential there. Like this could have been a real standout movie for the MCU. Um, and the way it turned out, it's just kind of all right, I guess, Chris. How about you? 
I'm straddling between a B minus and a C plus. I'm biased going in. I knew Jonathan Majors was going to be amazing. Um, so, so I'm right on that line because he's doing all the heavy lifting. I, I have the same criticisms as you. Um, however, I am, even if I didn't enjoy this much, this movie as much as I wanted it to, it's certainly not as God awful as people are saying. So like, don't, please don't misconstrue our thoughts on that, but I am very excited for where we're going in the future. I think it's a perfectly fine popcorn movie. I think that's probably the biggest thing to say. Like it's an, it's, it's certainly entertaining in the moment. Um, and I don't think anybody going to the theater to watch this is necessarily wasting money or something. Um, I I just think that what what is a, a passably decent movie could have been a truly great movie with a little bit more work on the script. All right, that wraps up our byword big talk. What were your thoughts and reactions to Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? Please be sure to hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram. But after we come back from our final break, we're bringing you two nerd commendations. All right, we are back for the fan favorite segment where we recommend the goods to you. We call it All right, Dave, I already wholeheartedly second uh, your nerd commendation. Yeah, so we've talked previously and nerd commended previously, uh, you know, various uh, online, uh, you know, streaming services, if you will, for comic books. Uh, The two big ones uh, that we've talked about a lot, Marvel Unlimited uh, over at Marvel and then DC Universe Infinite. Uh, I did want to, you know, kind of punt back to DC Universe Infinite, though, and re-nerd commend it to renew my nerd commendation because of a few months back, they changed their service up a little bit by adding a, uh, a new tier. Uh, and this tier has really sort of, uh, you know, shaped how I consume DC Comics uh, moving forward. Uh, and that is that DC Universe Infinite, Infinite now has a tier that they call Ultra. Uh, and the Ultra tier has done some really cool stuff. Uh, for one, uh, on the regular DC Universe Infinite, uh, comic books, new comic books are added uh, 90 days after print release. Ultra knocks that down to 30 days. So basically, you're only one month behind on reading new comic books with the service as opposed to three months. Uh, and that alone is already uh, a huge step in the right direction. Uh, cannot argue with that. Uh, also, uh, they have an, an additional 5,000 roughly comic books that are ultra tier only. A lot of these are uh, Vertigo and DC Black Label. So a lot of the stuff that I have a huge affinity for anyways, including the Vertigo stuff, um, is on the ultra tier. It's also this really cool thing that they do where if they uh, if you're reading uh, comic books, single issues, and they have a digital um, trade paperback or omnibus available, you can actually switch to reading it that way, which means you don't have issue breaks to contend with where you have to, you know, open the next issue over and over again. It's just one continuous read. So if you prefer reading and trade uh, on the ultra tier, uh, you can do that oftentimes rather than bouncing from single issue to single issue. Those collected editions have been, uh, you know, really a godsend for me as I just sit down and like go through 30 issues of a comic book or something. Uh, it is much, much easier to deal with the collected editions as opposed to the single issues. And then uh, I have to say the thing that I found to be the absolute 
most pleasant surprise is that uh, upon um, subscribing, upgrading, or renewing the membership, they actually uh, give a free gift um, as part of the subscription. And this is a free physical comic book. Um, it takes about uh, 10 to 12 weeks according to the website, but it took, I think for me, it took maybe two or three weeks at most after providing my mailing address. And what I got is a nice oversized soft cover copy of the Death of Superman 30th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. Um, uh, and had a exclusive cover just for Ultra members, uh, which was uh, drawn by Ivan Reese. Uh, the uh, collection collects uh, Superman 73 through 75, Adventures of Superman 496, 497, Justice League of America 69, Action Comics 683 to 684, Superman The Man of Steel 17 through 19, News Time The Life and Death of Superman number one, and Superman Day of Doom number one through four. There's also a whole bunch of uh, really cool bonus material in the book, uh, you know, sketches and the like. Uh, it's a really very, very cool edition of the Death of Superman storyline. Um, and that, you know, you, you get it as part of your membership, a free physical comic book, a very, very cool uh, oversized uh, trade paperback. So I find this new tier to be um, definitely worth the price of admission. It is extremely rewarding on the ultra tier to only be um, behind uh, 30 days when you're you know, predominantly using uh, DC Universe Infinite. Um, but on top of that, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the collected editions uh, as a way of reading digitally um, and the expanded selection uh, of, you know, Vertigo titles in particular have just made this really a must buy for me. Um, I'm super pleased um, with, with this uh, reward tier. And I'm, I'm just very, very glad um, that I bumped it up. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, um, I think the regular uh, rate is $7.99 a month or $74.99 a year. Um, and I think Ultra uh annual is um is 99 a year so it's not it's not that much more uh as far as you know what you're paying and i really do enjoy being on a yearly model as opposed to a monthly model you save a little bit of money um and uh, you don't have to worry about it for a whole year so uh i think this uh new tier is definitely worth the price of admission it comes highly recommended i'm having the time of my life reading all these old vertigo books yeah i totally second that um and I do the same thing with annual. Typically when I get tax returns or something of that nature, or um, when I get some, some of my paychecks from teaching online courses, I usually pony up and get my yearly subscription to both. Uh, and I could not be happier with both of my subscription services. I read the best of both um, titles. I'm reading my Nightwing right now. I'm reading a bunch of different stuff at Marvel. So um, if you're looking to get in the game and you're looking to read comics for the first time, these are the easiest places to do that and just hit the ground running. And there's limitless possibilities with readership. Yeah, absolutely, man. So you're taking us to the movies, Chris. What is your nerd commendation this week? Okay, uh, I'm recommending a horror movie. Who would have thought? I'm so you proud know, of you right look now. Look at us. Oh. Look at us. Who would have thought? To, to borrow a Paul <laughs> Rudd meme. To borrow a Paul Rudd meme on the Quantum Mania episode, who would have thought? Hmm? Not me. Uh, Dave, <laughs> have you seen Nope? I have not yet seen it. I really, really want uh, to, but I've just not found the time yet. Oh, it's streaming exclusively on Peacock, and 
even if it you're just ponying up four ninety nine for that first month, or maybe you get a free trial, it's worth it because my God, this is this is a movie, man. Um, and so like your evangelism, your bullying, it's paid off because like I'm here for this. I loved, loved, loved this movie. Impeccably acted. Uh, you've got Daniel Kaluuya as O.J. Haywood, Kiki Palmer as his sister Emerald, uh, Brandon Perea as Angel Torres, Michael Wincott as Antlers Holst, who's apparently been in a lot of stuff, but that I haven't seen and who has one of the coolest freaking voices ever. Steven Yoon as Ricky Jupe Park, uh, who's apparently been cast in Thunderbolts, I think. So I'm excited about that. And then the OG, one of the greatest voice actors, one of the greatest actors of cinematic history, Keith David as Otis Haywood senior. So um, this is about, um, the residents, I'm reading the IMDb synopsis right now. The residents of a lonely gulch in, in inland California bear witness to an uncanny and chilling experience, uh, excuse me, chilling discovery. And so like, it's like aliens and horses. And it's just one of the coolest experiences and everything that they say. This is my first Jordan Pill movie. I haven't watched Get Out yet. I've been dying to for years, but Everything they say about Jordan Peele as a visionary when it comes to filmmaking, like it's hard to believe that this is the same guy who made us giggle with Key and Peele sketches as like such like you can you can see it from like a, a storytelling and like a cinematic perspective. He's such a fan of Hollywood <laughs> and the movie making process and the shots that you see in this movie are so freaking beautiful and imaginative and evocative of emotions. Like you feel so many different emotions watching this film. You absolutely have to see it. It is a wild ride and I could not nerd commend it enough. So I uh, have seen uh, both Get Out and um, I think the, the sec his second movie was Us. And I Us, like yeah. both a really great deal. So I'm, I've been excited for Nope for a while. I just have not, you know, found the time yet to sit down and watch it. But I find Peel to be a very, very smart movie maker and and somebody who brings a really fresh voice into the into the horror genre. I have been um, so pleased to see his work, and I'm very, very excited to see this. So I am, I'm here for it, man. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword. We thank you so much for riding along with us and listening, and your support. If you would please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or nerdbyword.com. And of course, find us on social media. We're uh, all over the place. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Uh, let us know how you felt about Quantumania and uh, what you think of the points that we raised in today's episode. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm -hmm.